Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise for spiritual blessings in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity in all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, David. Thanks, Karis. My name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd love to uh, just briefly pray again as we look at this part of the word and as we start this new sermon series in Ephesians. So please join me. Father, as we gather here together this morning, we come dependent on you to do your work amongst us. Father, we are coming hungry to hear from you, to be filled from your word, and we're coming thirsty, longing to have our thirst quenched by Jesus, the living water. And we just pray today that you'd meet each person where they are, and Father, that you might show us yourself. Please open the eyes of our hearts so that we might be able to Behold Jesus today, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, John arrived at church with his head swimming with different thoughts, uh, thoughts from the week, from work, from home, from family, and he was finding it hard to concentrate on what was happening in church. He was tired, weary, worn out. He hoped it wouldn't be too long of a sermon today because he didn't think he'd be able to concentrate for that long. And then halfway through church, he had to start counting the bricks to keep himself awake. By the way, if your name's John, I'm not talking about you. (laughs) 
Lizzie was thinking about the future direction of the church. She wondered, what is the vision? What's the ministry? Where is all of this going? Uh, wonder, she wondered if she should put herself forward for parish council to help the church keep moving in the right direction. But she didn't want to look like she was making herself be too important. That's what she was thinking about. Eric was wondering if Harry would be at church today because they had a disagreement some months ago and they've been out of relationship after a silly conversation. They haven't spoken to each other since. And so that's what he was thinking about. Philippa was thinking about the friend she, she's been bringing along, whether all of this is a bit foreign to her, whether it's a bit inaccessible, whether she's done enough to help her get oriented to church. And Sean's wondering what the Bible reading's about again and what are these words that he doesn't understand and how is he supposed to grow in his faith if he can't figure out what's being said? Which person are you most like today as you sit here? Maybe you have something else on your mind. We all come with different things uh, to church and we think about them during the week. And I know because I think about the same things as you do. But today as we begin this new preaching series in the book of Ephesians. Today, the Apostle Paul is going to lift our eyes, lift our hearts to something so much higher than some of these things that we think about. He's going to lift our eyes to what is happening in the heavenly realms, to that unseen spiritual realm that God controls. And he's going to show us something so profound about Jesus in that place and how it actually affects us and our lives right now. We're starting this um, new preaching series in the book of Ephesians. I love this book of the Bible. God has used it in my life so profoundly when I was in my early 20s hearing preaching on this, reading it. I was so struck for probably the first time by the power of God, by the magnificence and magnitude of the gospel, by the centrality of Jesus to God's plans. And so I'm so looking forward to, to looking at this together. Uh, it's written by the Apostle Paul to the first century church around Ephesus, but may have been a circular letter uh, around the areas of Ephesus the Apostle Paul had been a Pharisee, which was a lay Jewish movement in the first century of volunteers, you could say, who gave their time to interpreting the Scriptures, thinking about how it applied to people. And they hated Jesus when he was on earth, and they hated the early church. And Paul became an exemplary Pharisee who even began killing Christians he, he was hunting them down. We're told he was breathing out murderous threats against the church. But one day on the road to Damascus, as he's traveling there, he sees a blinding light. He comes face to face with the risen Jesus, and his life is completely transformed. It's one of those moments where you think... Uh, how did this happen? This man went from so against the church to being the, the greatest proponent of Christianity in the first century. He wrote 13 letters, uh, which make up much of our New Testament, and Ephesians is one of those. Ephesians is called one of the prison epistles. Uh, it's written from jail to the church because Paul was locked up later for preaching the gospel. 
So today as we set ourselves up to look at this letter, I think there's two things that come up in the first two verses, and we're just looking at the first two today. Two things that are going to come up through the, the letter. Number one is our new identity, and number two is our new status. So let's first of all look at our new identity. Paul is an example to us of the new identity that we have as Christians. And it's, it's not an identity that we pursue and attain to, but it's, it's one that is received. We, we are given it by God. Uh, it's, it's a gift. See what Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 1. Just look at that reading there in your Bible, Ephesians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, no one in this room is an apostle. Uh, the the uh, original 12 uh, apostles uh, were those who were with Jesus in his ministry. And then uh, Judas died. They appointed Matthias. He became the next uh, apostle, having seen the risen Jesus. And then Paul becomes the 13th apostle when he sees Jesus on the road to Damascus. But he's an example of a Christian identity to us as well. Because you notice what he says, it's by the will of God. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's received an identity from God which has completely changed the direction of his life now. And he lives out this new identity that God's given to him. We, we are called Christians. That is a received identity from God. One of the marks of our culture at the moment is that uh, it, identity is something that you more or less create and sustain and even curate through your own efforts and performance. It, it's something that you look within to find your feelings, your desires, your dreams, and then you try to live that out in an authentic way. That is the authentic life, to, to know what your desires are, uh, your, your feelings, and then live it out. This is different to the ancient world where uh, an identity was received from your family. You were John Taylor's son, and so you made garments, and that was your, your life. That was your identity. But today, we are encouraged to look in. To, we have phrases that explain this. Um, you know, be true to yourself. Follow your heart. You do you. These phrases uh, tell us that the, the true and, and kind of faithful and authentic identity that our culture is looking for is one where you live out of your, your inner life and, and what you find there. You can use Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and social media, uh, depending on your age, <laughs> uh, to, to pursue your identity. You can Use LinkedIn and the board meeting and your career to uh, create an identity for yourself. You can use your own family as like a trophy to create that identity for yourself. It happens in different ways, but it's the same thing. We look in and we uh, try to live it out in the world. So the things that we do kind of become examples of our success, our business, our academic results, all these things are like a badge of honour and success. And we're constantly creating, constantly trying to move in this direction of showing to the world that I'm being an authentic person. Now the result of this is twofold. On the one hand you might be exhausted because you can't keep it up and you can't 
achieve what you want to achieve and you can't do anything that impresses other people, so you're exhausted. You're a bit like that lady from the BBC drama, uh, Keeping Up Appearances, Hyacinth. You remember her? She's, she's exhausted because she can't do it. She can't be the person that she really wants to be. Or the other result is pride. You actually feel like you have gone somewhere and you start to look down on others and you don't have time for them anymore. The related problem with this is actually how we relate to people. Uh, we start to see people as either above us or below us. Someone else might be above me who's gone further than me, achieved more, had more success, and I might fear them or revere them. They're above me. And the other people who are worse off than me, I kind of look down on them and I don't have time for them and they're kind of a waste of space to me. All of this is what Carl Truman has described in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, as uh, he says this, that, that which hinders my outward expression of my inner feelings, that which challenges or attempts to falsify my psychological beliefs about myself and thus to disturb my sense of inner well-being is by definition harmful and to be rejected. So you see what he's saying? If something gets in the way of you living out of your heart, your, your dreams and your desires and your feelings, then you need to get rid of that thing altogether. So the ultimate authority structure in our current contemporary culture is myself, my desires, my feelings. What I have inside of me is what I need to be accountable to and nothing else. The problem with that is it's flimsy. It's a flimsy, poor way to have an identity. Because if you're anything like me, what's inside of you might change before breakfast, after breakfast, lunchtime, in the afternoon. I can be different people throughout the day, depending on what, what happens. Uh, don't get me started on different seasons of life and how different my desires have been. Don't get me started on the middle of the night when I get woken up then and, and what I'm like then. And if you have this mindset, yes, you might still help people. You might, of course, you'll still look after people. But ultimately, if your goal is to live out this authentic inner life in front of the world, even other people will be kind of projects where they are either helping you live out your authentic life or their hindrance to that. And so you can't actually care for people on, on their terms and, and what, they, uh, what is best for them. There's even a religious version of this identity where you have the smug religious person who looks down on other people because they're not performing as well as them. They're not praying as well. They're not doing the disciplines as well as them or they're not, uh, you know, uh, showcasing their spirituality like they are. Or there's the insecure religious person who's constantly looking sideways thinking, I'm so much worse than all these other Christians around me. And either way, you're looking sideways to those around you. So what's the alternative identity in the gospel? Well, you can see it in what Paul says about himself. You can also see it in what he says about the church. See the, the rest of verse 1. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. The most fundamental thing Paul sees about himself and this church is not their performance, their status, their achievements, their city, their whatever. 
the most fundamental thing about him, about this church, and by extension us if we are believers in Christ, is God and his work in Christ. God and his work in Christ is the most fundamental reality about who they are. Paul's called an apostle, which is the, the word really just means he's a sent one, that, that Jesus has sent him into the mission field to, to do his work. He says this is not through his achievement, it's through the will of God. Uh, the church, the Christians are called God's holy people. And it's because of the work of Christ at the cross that they have now been uh, bought through the blood of Jesus to be a, a new people out of this world, to, to bear the mark of Jesus and the Spirit, to be set apart and unique and, and sanctified, uh, to be uh, a totally new people. So here's an identity that is completely different to the one offered us in our culture. Not discovered by us, but decided by God. Not achieved, but given uh, by God, agreed on by him. Not a performance, but a presentation from God to us. That's the Christian identity. And if you base your identity on your ability or your your position or your achievement, then it can be just snatched away so easily. Some of you may know Mahia from our church. He's just uh, a wonderful servant of Jesus and has just started as an intern this year with us. And it's such a joy to have him. But if you know his story, um, and if you don't, one of the most encouraging things you could do this year, when you see him at a central prayer or something, just ask him, can you tell me your story? But he he now sits in a wheelchair after having a surfing accident in Sydney a number of years ago. And uh, he can't can't walk. He almost died during that accident, uh, but instead it left him with a permanent disability. And he didn't know Jesus before this accident. He'd had some interactions with, with our church through his sister before that time. And it was in the hospital bed as he lay there having to press a button so that he could call the staff over just to ease the itchiness on the top of his scalp. Uh, It was in that bed that as he sat down with with Paul, one one of our pastors, and looked at the gospel, that he knew for the first time the identity that God would give to him in Christ, not based on his life or his achievements, but based on Jesus and his love and his grace and his mercy. And in an earthly sense, all of his identity was stripped from him in that accident. But if you meet him today, you will know the difference that the Christian identity has made in his life, where he now serves freely and willingly and lovingly so many people. When I'm, when I'm with him, he's on the phone to all these friends sharing Christ with them. He has a group that is growing constantly of his Iranian friends who he's bringing to know uh, Jesus. If you grab hold of your new identity that comes in the gospel, it will radically shape your life because no longer are you looking sideways, no longer are you looking within, trying to strive to live and discover and create 
something, but you receive with open hands what God has given freely in Christ. You won't be defined by the performance of yourself or your children or, or other people around you. You won't be defined by uh, your academic or sporting achievements or your, your creative endeavors. You'll be defined by Christ. And it's an identity that, you know, God forbid that this would happen to anyone, but that if you find yourself in, in an abandoned situation or, or in a situation out of your control in the future or, or somewhere where things are stripped from you, you end up destitute or something else, that it still can't be taken from you <laughs> because now the most true thing about you is not what you say about yourself and not what others say about you and not what you have done, but what God has declared and what he has declared is not going to change so long as God lives and God will live. And that's why we sing that song, I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am, not who I say I am, not who someone else says I am, but who you say I am. So that's the new identity. Second thing, last thing this morning is the new status that we have. Notice the second part of verse 2 with me. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. You know, it doesn't matter which philosophical or religious system that you look at in history, all of them would tell us there's something wrong with the world. There is something wrong with humans, with our hearts. There's something wrong in this world. Seneca, the first century Stoic philosopher, says this. He says, it's not only that we have acted amiss, we shall do so till the end. In other words, we're stuck in this human condition. It's a predicament. We can't get out of it. And he said, most of all, what we need, he's not a Christian, but he said, most of all, what we really need is for someone to give the hand down to let us out. We need rescuing. We actually need a saviour. That's what he's saying. And all of the philosophical traditions agree there's something wrong. The world's religions agree there is something wrong with the world. And most actually would say that in some way, if we can do the right things, if we have the right discipline, if we do the right strategies, if we say the right things, we can fix it. We can solve it for ourselves or for our society generally. We can move from being evil to holy somehow through our efforts What does the gospel say? The gospel says, yes, there is a fundamental problem. Yes, it it has infected the world. Yes, like Seneca says, you know, we're stuck in that. We can't solve that. But it it, it says that it's, it's from here, from our hearts. It's called pride. It is us, the creatures, saying to our creator, I've got this. I don't need your help. I don't want your help. I I." I know how to do this life on my own. And it is caused by pride in the human heart. It is called sin. That's the Bible's word for it. And it provokes the judgment of God. God says to us as a response, I will cut you off from my life if that's the way you want to live. I will hand you over to your desires if that's what you want. I will give you over to the life without me if that is what you wish And that is what is called spiritual death. 
Now, Paul will say in the letter of the Ephesians, there's a way out of this situation. There is a way out, and it's not through effort. How will it happen? He says, we need to be united to Christ. We need to be, the language he uses is in Christ. He uses that phrase, in Christ, 30 times throughout the letter to the Ephesians. And it's in that place, in Christ, that every good thing comes to us. God's mercy, God's grace, the redemption, the predestination, the, the, uh, the work of the Spirit. All these things come when we are in Christ, when we are united to Christ. So the church here is described as being in Ephesus, but it's also described as being in Christ. Physically, they are in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a, 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 a successful city, a, a city that was full of uh, trade and also idolatry. It was a dark city. It was full of black magic and witchcraft, and you can see that from our Acts reading. And when the gospel came to that city, there was an almighty conflict between the darkness of the city and the light of Christ. It even changed the economy in the following chapter, Acts 20. There's an uproar and a riot in the city because they want to stop this, this gospel coming, which is now interrupting their local economy. But the biblical storyline would tell us that Ephesus, that, that any of the cities that are established like this in opposition to God, away from the providence and the plan of God, are all on the same trajectory. And that is all the cities of history, starting with Babel, that city where they built this great tower to try to create a name for themselves, that all cities that humans build where sinners get together and set ourselves up against the God who created us, that all cities are in the same trajectory, the same way. But the church might sit in the city of Ephesus, and yet there is another place that they sit at the same time. Spiritually, they sit in Christ, that they are united to him by faith. So yes, they sit in this city of Ephesus, that they are God's holy people in Christ Jesus, that they actually have a spiritual location. And it happens as we put our faith in Christ. And faith, by the way, is such a misunderstood word. It just means coming to Jesus with empty hands. In fact, we just bring, the only thing we bring is our sin. We say, Jesus, I'm coming to you like this. And he says, yes, I receive you. That is faith. And when you come to him like that, he indwells you and you indwell him. You are in Christ as a believer and we as the church collectively are in Christ. And so, yes, we sit here in Neutral Bay this morning in Sydney, a city not so different from Ephesus, although our idols may be slightly different. But we are seated in Christ in the heavenly places. Jesus, the one who is raised from the dead. It is like being in an aeroplane. You get into an aeroplane you sit on your seat, and now what happens to the airplane also happens to you. <laughs> if that airplane starts flying at 995 kilometers an hour, which apparently I just discovered they do, that's very fast, uh, 
you also go that fast. If the airplane flies at 11,000 metres altitude, then you fly at that altitude. If, if it lands in Spain, then you land in Spain. Because what is true of the plane is true of you now. It's the same with being united to Christ. If you are in him, then what is true of Jesus is true of you, Christian person. <laughs> that the life that he has in himself is now yours because you're united to him. That the redemption that he has to give is now yours. That the relationship with his father is now yours because you are united to him by faith. You have a new spiritual location. I'm not talking about what you need to do as a Christian. I'm talking about the new status God has given to you as a gift. A total gift. Nothing that you've done to earn it or pay for it or pay it back. Louis Burkhoff says, all our good is outside of us, and that good is Christ. Another theologian says, union with Christ is not union with a system of doctrine, nor with an external religious influences, nor with an organized church, nor with an ideal man, but rather with a personal, living, risen, omnipresent Lord. And A.W. Tozer says, the moment the Spirit is, has awakened us to life in regeneration, our whole being senses its kinship to God and leaps up in joyous recognition. How much do you take a moment to think about Christ, think about who he is and the fact that you are connected to him, eternally connected to him? Like a marriage is a great illustration. Notice verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that we receive Grace, that undeserved favor and forgiveness of God, and peace, the undeserved relationship being restored between us and God. We'll see next week the array of spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Redeemed, chosen, predestined, adopted, forgiven, sealed, and all of these come because we are in Christ. Ephesians is a book of the Bible God used to show me his power. And I'm praying that it would be the same for you as we go through this book. I really pray that. And J.I. Packer once said, if you want to know God's power, just read Ephesians back to back nine times straight and uh, you'll experience it. <laughs> so there you go, <laughs> challenge for you this week. The gospel gives to us not merely a ticket to heaven, but also, friends, a new identity and a new status. You have a whole new way to not only view God, but view yourself. You are now in Christ. It means we can move from a performance-based mentality, a striving, a, a looking to prove ourselves, to knowing there's nothing left to prove because God has received me as I am in his Son. I read a beautiful article this week on the Gospel Coalition's website about a young guy who was, from childhood, had had this dream to write a novel and he'd submitted like multiple manuscripts uh, trying to get this thing published but he found he was actually neglecting his family he was getting up in the early hours of the morning trying to write these novels and uh, he became angry with his family and he, he came to this realization that he had to let it go he writes this I found myself a slave chained inside a lightless cell with one circular wall and no exits 
I'd somehow turned writing into my greatest consolation and love, and it had become my bitter master. Thankfully, in our darkest moments of slavery and futility, God is there. Now that I've made the decision to shelve my dream, I feel the freest I have in 24 years. Those feelings of failure, ashes on the wind. The despair like a ghost of a nightmare. The short temper, let's call that one a work in progress. He knew that he was now in Christ. You know, our culture would say, blasphemy, you know, pursue your dream. But in Christ, he could let it go to pursue what God had for him in that moment. The responsibilities he had. Friends, in Christ, we have everything we need. What are we lacking? We lack nothing. You don't have to go chasing things to find your identity, to find a status, to find a performance that you can project to the world. No, we have it. We have the best thing that we could possibly ever want in Christ. When I confirmed my baptism vows at about 16 years old, we got to choose a song for the service, and I chose this one by Charles Wesley and Can It Be. I'm going to read the last verse, which, which just captures so much of this new identity. It says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Let me pray. We thank you this morning, Father, for showing us in your word the amazing grace, the amazing blessing that you have given to us in uniting us with your Son by your Spirit. We thank you, Father, for this work you have done. We thank you that though we sit in this city here in this world, that, Father, we more fundamentally are yours because we're united to your Son. Father, impress this on us, we pray, as we look at the book of Ephesians. Impress this on us so deeply so that we might live out of this new life you've given to us, so that we might do it for your honour, for the love of you and others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.